This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi there, welcome to episode 34 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. My name is Alan Farsfalt and today I am taking us back to our basic formats with an interview, a bit of stellar physics to take us on the next leg of our journey through the life cycle of a star from gas cloud to black hole, and a mission update by Clem Unger, my co-host from the Equinox show. The interview today is with a local astronomer, Dr. Itumaleng Monacheng, a recent PhD graduate working as a research astronomer for the South African Astronomical Observatory. I first learned about him when he appeared in a short promo video put out by SAAO, so I gave him a call, invited him onto the show, he graciously accepted, and here we are. But before I play that recording for you, I'd like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. There aren't a lot of you guys, but I appreciate you all the more because of it. What you're giving me might not seem like much, but every cent is appreciated, and it's already helping to cover some of the costs of hosting the website. Thanks, and don't forget that the higher tier supporters get access to the recordings library. Every recording that's ever been used before editing and trimming, and even a few recordings that haven't been heard yet or were reserved for special projects. Just head to the Patreon appreciation page on the Urban Astronomer website at www.urban-astronomer.com to find the link. And since I'm in gratitude mode, I would like to say hi and thanks to the sadly reduced crowd at the Awesome Astronomy Podcast. They're a quality show run by good people who know their stuff and who puts out a properly professional show. Yes, I know, they go off script sometimes and collapse into giggles and petty insults, but that's all part of the fun and I wouldn't want them to change that for the world. Anyway, they said some really kind words about Clem, the show, and myself, and I was touched deep in my heart. You guys, when the invasion comes, I promise to put up only a token resistance. Ooh la, my little green friends. Ooh la. We'd better cut to the interview now before I get all emotional. Here's the man of the hour, Dr. Itumeleng Monacheng. My name is Itumeleng Monacheng. Um, I'm originally from Joburg. I grew up there, uh, but then I've been living in Cape Town for the past 10 years or so. I came um, for my undergrad and I've stayed since. Mm-hmm. Where did um, you do undergrad? At UCT. Um, and yeah, I'm an astronomer. Great stuff. So then, uh, what, what led you to astronomy? Um, I think... It's basically a curiosity. Um, so the earliest memory I have of this is when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a solar eclipse uh, this one day. And so my father used to buy the, the daily newspaper. And on that particular day, they had a, they had a coverage of the, of the solar eclipse. So they're explaining, you know, everything about it and, you know, the ins and outs and what's actually happening but at a very layman uh, level that a, a 12-year-old could understood could understand. Right. Um, and then I remember the newspaper came with these safety goggles to view the, the solar eclipse without damaging your eyes. Yeah, and I was using that to, to, to view, and I was ex- you know, excited, uh, showing people around, showing people at school. Um, yeah, and showing my parents. And, and my brother actually saw this interest and bought me this... Uh, Kitty's astronomy book, and yeah, I haven't looked back since. I guess that's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so so when you went to varsity, did you go straight for a what was like a, a physics degree or an astronomy degree, or how, how did you work? Um, 
Yeah, well, it's a. I went for a double major because that's that's usually the case with the science uh, streams. Mm. So I did a physics and astronomy uh, double major. Okay, now that yeah. what you said. Uh, UCT. Uh, UCT. I'm thinking. Of course, you said you were Joburg. Yeah, I'm confusing yeah. myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, at the time um, when I was doing my undergrad, UCT was the only uh, university in South Africa that offered astronomy at undergraduate level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with other universities, you, you would have to major in physics and something else like maths or applied maths. Yeah, yeah. What, what year was that? This was 2007. Okay. Yeah. When I started my undergrad, yeah. Mm. All right. Um, so you got your degree. Um, did you take it on? If I recall, I'm not quite clear. Do you got your master's or, or are you working on a PhD or do you have it yet? Um, I just finished my PhD. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Nice. What was the what was the topic? Uh, the topic of my PhD was um, multi wavelength studies of uh, gamma ray binaries. Okay, all right. I think yeah. I saw a paper you did it with what, Dr. McBride, right? Yes. Yeah. She she was my supervisor. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. For masters, both masters and PhD. Okay. And from yeah. there, how did you get into? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you work for SAO. Yeah, at the moment I'm working for SAO. Okay, how do you, was it an easy path from, from graduating to working there? Or? Um, actually, I've been here for my graduate degree because um, Dr. McBride is, uh, had a joint position with UCT and SAO. Hmm. So even though I was registered at UCT, I had office space here at SAO. So I had the choice of, uh, well, I had, I had two options of uh, spending time at SAO or UCT or both, you know. I could split up my time however I wanted to, but I, I liked SAO more, the environment. So I've been spending most of my time here. Okay. How long have you been there? Um, so I started my master's in 2012 and finished in 2014. So from 2012, basically. Okay. I've been, I've been both here and, and UCT. Okay. So it's a nice, nice career then. <laughs> so yeah. so you, you, I take it you're a research astronomer then. You're not an instrumentation guy or... No, no, no. Yeah, I do research. Okay. What, what, yeah. what are your research interests? Um, so, um, as I mentioned, I'm doing my... So, my PhD uh, uh, thesis was on gamma ray binaries. Mm-hmm. And my master's thesis was on the so-called BD X-ray binaries. So, I work on high-mass X-ray binaries in general. Um, but then, you know, I also, I'm also interested in other binary star systems like low-mass X-ray binaries and um planetary nebulae so central stars in of, of planetary nebulae and so basically any interacting stellar systems i'm, okay. I'm interested in i never occurred to me that you could have binaries at the sense of a planetary nebula yeah yeah it's actually a hot uh topic there's um a guy working here uh dr michalski uh-huh. he's done a lot of work on that and he's continuing to do to discover these these okay. binary stars in, in the center of PN. So this typically be something where the one star has ejected its outer layer to make the planetary nebula, and the other one is just a companion, or do they yeah, tend to interact? Yeah. Or yes, yes, and they're still interacting. Okay, okay. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Never would have thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> there's actually quite a few papers on them recently, by uh, mostly led by Dr. Mijalski, who's also working here. He's a solar astronomer. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, so I've done uh, research mostly on 
optical studies of high-mass X-ray binaries. Mm. So with BE X-ray binaries, uh, they consist of a BE star with a neutron star um, orbiting around it. And the BE star actually has a disk around it, okay. which you know varies in size. So one of the main aims of our studies is to understand how this disk varies and interacts with the neutron star, giving off emission at other wavelengths like X-ray emission. All right. This disk, yeah. is that, say, a decretion disk? Or? Yeah, it's a decretion disk. Okay. So there's, right. there's an accretion disk. Yeah. This one is decretion disk. I've never heard that term either. What's, what's the difference? So the difference is that with an accretion disk, um, you normally found the, find those around compact objects, like around neutron stars or black holes. Mm -hmm. And the matter flows from the outside of the disk to the inside because it's being accreted by the, by the compact object. Right. But the decretion disk, it's basically the same physics, but just that the matter is flowing outside because it's it's formed by the BE star. Okay, all right. So I think I then need to ask, what is a BE yeah. star? So a BE star is, um, as you might know, stars are classified by this uh, system where they use the letters O, B, A, F, G, K, M. So O, B, A, fine girl, or guy, kiss me, how, <laughs> how we remember it. Okay. So for example, the sun is a G-type star. Right. Right. So a BE star is a B-type star. So it's a very high-mass uh, star. Okay, so, so very can, hot. Can, and... Yeah, so they can go up to masses of 30 times or so uh, solar masses, so 30 times the mass of the sun. Okay. And it's spinning re very rapidly, which might have to do with the formation of the disk. All right, okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's a very heavy... So it's a B-spectral type. Yeah. And then the E becomes because of uh, we see emission lines in the optical spectrum. Okay, all right, I yeah. understand. Yeah, and the emission lines come about because of the disk. Ah, uh, okay, so the disk is hot and it's glowing and... Yes, and it's giving off um, Balmer lines and helium lines. Okay, I understand this now, thank you. <clears throat> sure. All right. <laughs> um, well, we are motoring through these questions a lot faster than I planned. <coughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, if you, um, what would you advise, because <clears throat> this is a, an interest of mine now, one of the reasons I do the podcast is to try and set up astronomy as an option for, you know, learners and students and young adults and what have you. Sure. Um, whether it's professional or amateur, you know, as is a hobby. Um, yeah. What would you advise somebody, say school age, maybe from your, your from where, your background or where you grew up or what have you, if they wanted yeah. to, to be like you? What would you tell them? How should they start? Um, first of all, you have to have an interest in it. Uh, so in, you know, physics or, or you know, astronomy. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's lots of information. I guess now it's easier than it was when I was in school because, you know, everybody has, has smartphones now. The kids have uh, yeah. smartphones. So you have access to information, lots of it in, in, in your pocket. Mm -hmm. So look up usually universities and observatories like SAO and HADRAO. They have outreach programs. So look out for these and get information from them because, you know, you can you can take part in them. For mm -hmm. example, SAO has a outreach, uh, very active outreach department, which 
hosts open nights every second Saturday and they go out to schools, they get um, learners to come here and chat to astronomers, chat to engineers. So there's there's a lot of those uh, uh, around. So use use your smartphone to or the internet to uh, get information. Mm-hmm. And you can and astronomers are very friendly people. They they always uh, welcome uh, kids. They're always willing to chat about their science and, and yeah. everything. And also, you know, as you know, uh, SAO, um, you know, there's telescopes in Sutherland, and mm-hmm. uh, they welcome visitors. So there's there's regular tours held there. You know, the kids can can always visit. Okay. You've been to Southern, well, I'm assuming you've been, but do you spend a lot of yeah. time there or do you tend to just put in a request? Um, so for my, for my graduate degree, I've spent quite a few, a few weeks, um, observing using uh, various telescopes there. Yeah. So observing my data and also helping out my collaborators, um, who, you know, who couldn't make it for whatever reason mm-hmm. to observe. Um, yeah, I would, I would spend a few weeks there. So I've been working since February as a SALT support astronomer. So I've, I've been using SALT. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's about one week, once a month or so, the frequency. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Great. Cool. Um, as a question is more relevant to me, I've uh, recently been appointed the director of citizen science uh, for ESSA, Astronomical okay. Society. So citizen science has become a really big deal for me recently. The kind of work that you do or in related fields, if amateurs yeah. wanted to help, yeah. um, I would probably by default recommend a citizen science project. And I'm defining yeah. this quite broadly. So it's anything from um, AAVSO or what have you. Yeah. Um, what kind of, what's, what's of those projects are useful to you? Um, to me personally, so for example, the current research, so the paper that I'm working on right now, mm. I've actually used, um, AA, uh, VSO data magnitudes okay. to, to calibrate, um, the magnitudes of a star that we, we currently study. Right. So that's, that's been very useful to me directly because, you know, you have uh, a lot of, uh, data from amateur astronomers, uh, that, might have not been available or might have not been known if, if it wasn't for them. Right. So that's, that's pretty helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one cool aspect that's been direct, uh, directly related to what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. That's the nice thing about AAVSO is that it, it seems to be generally useful in, in all sorts of areas. Yeah. Whereas your, the stuff that gets the press now, it tends to be, as I understand, much more narrowly focused. Yeah, and you have um, you have also these rules and regulations that make it very inaccessible. You know, unless you know they they make the data. So there's a propriety period usually for these big telescopes uh. that only the person or the PI of the program and the collaborators have access to it until a certain period mm-hmm. when it becomes public. Yeah. So that's why we um, we appreciate um, like amateur astronomer um, community for that. Yeah. No, perfect. That's good to hear. I have run out of stuff to ask you. Uh, so, 
<laughs> is there anything you would like to draw people's attention to or projects you'd like to plug or share content yeah details? yeah sure um so um i will promote uh, sao so mm-hmm. you can visit get information on sao and what you can do how you can visit uh, on the website it's www.saao.ac.za So this is, you know, for everyone, kids, adults, anyone interested in astronomy. There's regular, as I said, open nights that are held every second Saturday where the format, it starts at 8 and it's free and it's accessible to everyone. So the format is that usually there's an astronomer giving a talk for, you know, about 30 minutes or so. And then afterwards, if the sky is clear, we take out small telescopes, and you can also use the big telescope over here mm-hmm. to um, to view whatever's up, whatever cool objects are, and mm-hmm. interact with astronomers and ask questions. And and yeah, and it's free. You can bring any any. It, it's accessible for all age ranges. So typically, you'll get kids from the age of four attending to people from the age of about the age of eighty or so. Wow. Okay. So it's very. It's a. It's a wide. It's you know. It's a wide range of, of uh, people with different backgrounds. Some of them don't know anything about astronomy. Some of them can can see that there's an interest there. Yeah. If people would like to talk to you, how can they get a hold of you? Um. You can get a hold of me via email. So my email address is imonacheng. That's i m o n a g e n g at gmail dot com. Okay. Or you can just follow me on social media. Search for me on Facebook. It's Itu Meleng M Monaching. And my Twitter handle is I am Matuba. So I am M A T U B A. Great. And I'll put links to that on the on the show notes page. Sure. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ellen. Great having you on. A few episodes ago, when we last picked up our story about the evolution of a star from gas cloud to supernova, we finished on a list of the different types of star that you get, based on how much mass went into them. We covered brown dwarfs, red dwarfs, yellow dwarfs, and the various colored giants. But one thing all true stars have in common is that for the bulk of their lives, they are powered by the fusion of hydrogen into helium in their cores. Now, some stars are enormous and have enormous fuel reserves, while others are quite small and have significantly less. Now, I think that if you asked most people which of these stars would last longer, they'd say that the ones with the biggest reserves could keep burning for longer because, well, that's how reserves work. But stars don't just store their fuel. It's the very mass of that fuel which powers the engine, which heats and crushes everything together and causes the nuclear fusion to begin in the first place. So the bigger your fuel supply, the heavier it is, which means the core of a big star is much hotter and denser and larger than the core of a small star. And a bigger, hotter, denser core burns through its fuel much faster than a smaller, lighter one. This means that the biggest stars have very short lives, while the smallest ones could burn for many trillions of years. So what happens when that fuel does eventually run out? In a small red dwarf star, when it does eventually manage to use up all that fuel, fusion reactions just stop. Red dwarfs have convection currents so that fresh hydrogen from the outer reaches can circulate into the core and the helium ash can move away so that the hydrogen and helium stay pretty well mixed throughout the body of the star. Over time, the concentration of helium increases and the concentration of hydrogen decreases. As this happens, fewer and fewer of the collisions between atomic nuclei are between two hydrogens, and more of them involve helium. 
So we get fewer fusion reactions happening, which means less energy being produced, which means the pressure begins to fall. That allows gravity to win a bit. Everything can settle down a bit further until the pressure and temperature get forced back up enough to speed up the fusion again and the balance is restored. In other words, as a red dwarf ages, it shrinks and heats gradually. Eventually, though, it will reach a point where it just cannot sustain the contraction. It's just not heavy enough. And when that happens, fusion gradually dies down and eventually stops. And what's left is a white dwarf. A tiny, compact ball of super-dense helium, glowing white-hot with residual heat. Larger stars, like our one, are big enough to push past this point. The first difference is that the core of a yellow dwarf star does not mix with the rest of the star, so despite having a much larger supply of hydrogen fuel, only a small portion of it is ever available to burn, and the helium ash does not get circulated away, instead it accumulates, and over time the core eventually becomes almost entirely composed of just helium. But hydrogen fusion doesn't stop. Like the red dwarf, as fusion reactions slow down, the entire star contracts slightly, raising the temperature and pressure throughout, and so the central parts of the star that are hot enough for hydrogen fusion grow. So we end up with a hot, dense, but not actually burning core of helium, surrounded by an outer core of fusing hydrogen. Over time, the helium core gets bigger, and the outer core grows outwards into a shell of hydrogen fusion. Now from the outside, nothing seems to have changed much. The star's a little dimmer and a little smaller, but there's all this extra activity going on in the interior. A helium core slowly growing and getting hotter and hotter. And since there's no fusion going on there, no energy being released to counteract gravity, it also continues compacting tighter and tighter. At the same time, because the fusion of hydrogen is happening closer to the surface, the bulk of the star, all that hot plasma surrounding the hydrogen fusion shell, gets hotter too. In accordance with the gas laws that I've talked so much about, they respond to the increase in temperature by expanding. The entire star grows, getting bigger and bigger. As it gets bigger, the surface area obviously increases, which means it can radiate heat out more efficiently. More efficient radiating leads to two apparently paradoxical changes. The surface of the star cools down because the same amount of energy has now spread out over a much larger area, and the star becomes brighter because, again, there's so much more surface to radiate. Eventually, the core temperature is so high that something over 100 million kelvins, or degrees Celsius, that the next stage begins. Helium starts to fuse into heavier elements, like carbon. These reactions, involving three helium-4 atoms combining in different ways to produce different elements, are very temperature-sensitive. Increasing the temperature by even a small amount makes the reactions much more likely to occur, and this leads to a chain reaction within the, within the heart of the star. The helium core finally gets hot enough for helium fusion to begin, which releases energy, causing the temperature to go up a bit more. That causes helium fusion to happen faster, which pushes the temperature up higher, which speeds up the reactions further. So, where hydrogen fusion was a relatively gentle and stable event, the ignition of helium is more like an explosion. Uh, that we call a helium flash. For a few seconds, the core is so hot and energetic that it produces about 100 billion times more energy than before. All this extra heat causes the core to rapidly expand, pushing back violently against gravity. Anyway, after all of this, things stabilize once more. We now have a large helium-burning core surrounded by a hydrogen-burning shell, and outside of that, our old radiative zone continues as if nothing had happened, and our convective outer layer after that. Incidentally, stars at this stage have ballooned up so much that all that violence of the helium flash, that explosive growth of the core, is completely invisible from the outside.
These stars, incidentally, are called red giants. They're cool enough to be merely glowing red hot instead of that yellow, white, or blue heat that we've seen so far. And they're many hundreds of times larger than they were in their hydrogen-burning phase. The sun, for example, when it reaches this stage, will likely be big enough to completely engulf the Earth. It will have grown from a diameter of a little over a million kilometers to well over a hundred million. This leaves so much material between the surface and the core that none of the violent activity is visible on the surface at all. Instead, we just see the star continue to expand as all that newly released energy heats up the outer layers and causes them to continue expanding even further. Now, as you'll remember from the very first part of the series, the further you get from the center of mass of any, of any massive volume, the weaker its gravitational hold on you. So as the outer layer of gas expands, it eventually reaches a point where it can overcome the gravity and simply lift off, escaping from the star, continuing to rush into space at whatever speed it had been moving before, in an ever-expanding shell, spreading out forever, glowing, until it dissipates entirely into interstellar space. Meanwhile, with all that excess energy of the helium flash having now been released, the remainder of the star settles down into a new stable state. A hot, dense core, furiously burning helium into carbon, oxygen and nitrogen at temperatures of over 100 million degrees Celsius, surrounded by a cooler shell of hydrogen fusion, surrounded again by progressively cooler layers of sealing plasma. This helium-burning red giant stage lasts a significantly shorter time than the main sequence hydrogen-burning stage, perhaps 100 million years or so, less than 1% of the star's total life. What happens then? Well, as always, that depends on just how much material is contained within the star and how massive it is. Our sun, having passed this stage, will eventually end as a white dwarf. But a star significantly more massive than that? Well, now the end of our story is in sight, because this is when we get a mysterious neutron star, or even, if there's enough mass, a black hole. And we'll explain that next time. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, all three engines up and burning, 2, 1, 0, and liftoff of the Urban Astronomer Mission Update. Hi, and welcome to the Mission Update segment of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. My name is Klamanga and I'm your host in this part of the show, which will keep you up to date with current space missions, upcoming launches and other space-related things I find interesting. And um, we don't even really have started our first uh, show and we already have to celebrate. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, happy birthday. That was nice. And um, yeah, that was 60 candles that were blown out there in the end and uh, for no one else than NASA. And uh, NASA is turning 60 this week and can look back on an amazing history of manned and unmanned space flight. And of course, the first moon landing springs to mind uh, that will have um, next year its uh, 50th anniversary. And uh, but also other milestone missions such as Voyager 1 and 2, Cassini and the Mars rovers, to name a few, um, have given us amazing new knowledge of the solar system. And um, well, it's also uh, a moment where we should remember that um, space flight um, is a pretty dangerous business, and we must remember astronauts of Apollo 1, Challenger, 
and uh, Colombia. And um, this year, NASA is set to commence uh, manned missions with the Commercial Crew Program, and um, a return on the, to the moon has just been announced by uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine at the AAU conference in Germany. So. Uh, all in all, that's good news. Well done, NASA. Happy birthday. Happy 60th. And uh, let's see what the next 60 years will bring us. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, moving on, let's talk about some space missions which are currently underway. And uh, if you've listened to the Equinox podcast of the show, you perhaps remember the Hayabusa 2 mission to asteroid Ryugu by the Japanese space agency JAXA. Um, at the time of the recording of this mission update, a third lander called Mascot, which is built by Germany and France, is floating down to the surface of the asteroid. And that follows the successful touchdown of um, the two Minerva rovers 1A and 1B several days earlier, late September. And uh, so far, ro the rovers and orbiter cameras show that uh, the surface of the asteroid is fairly rugged. And that actually may have some consequences for the acquisition of um, a regolith sample by the orbiter a little bit later in the mission. So we have to watch this, what's going on there. And uh, we'll report back to you once we know more. 2018 is certainly the year of the near-Earth asteroid missions and the second mission to go to an asteroid is, uh, of course, NASA's OSIRIS-REx, which will arrive at its target asteroid 1999 RQ-36, or better known as Bennu, on the 3rd of December this year. Uh, the spacecraft's navigation cameras have acquired the asteroid and OSIRIS-REx underwent um, a few days ago the first of its three braking maneuvers to reduce its relative speed uh, to the asteroid from around 1700 kilometers an hour, which um, is roughly 490 meters a second, down to um, about 0.04 meters a second or 144 meters an hour. And um, the braking is rather important as the gravity of Bennu is extremely low and um, the spacecraft needs to use its main engine to slow down and can't rely on, a, uh, on the asteroid's gravity to pull it in. Bennu, like Ryugu, um, where Hayabusa 2 uh, currently is, is a carbonaceous chondrite and comes close to Earth every six years and... Uh, the Osiris-Rex mission hopes to unlock Benno's secrets and hopefully will return with a regolith sample in 2023. So over the next year we'll follow the progress of the mission of course and report back to you here on the Urban Astronomer Mission Update. As the saying goes, a lot of things in life come in threes. So the third mission I wanted to mention to you is the Parker Solar Probe, which was launched on the Delta IV Heavy on August 12th this year. 10, 9, nine start. 8, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Liftoff. <laughs> 
of the mighty Delta IV heavy rocket with NASA's Parker Solar Probe, a daring mission to shed light on the mysteries of our closest star, the Sun. you could hear the launch was a success and uh, Parker will do the first of its seven planned Venus gravity assists on October 3rd which is tomorrow my time here when we record it and have its first perihelion uh, the closest point to the sun in its elliptic orbit on November 5th. There will be um, a total of 24 close encounters with the sun where Parker will fly ever closer through the sun's corona up until 2025 and the mission goals are to trace the flow of energy that heats the solar corona and um, accelerates the solar wind as well as to determine the structure and dynamics of the magnetic fields at the sources of the solar wind. It's a fabulous mission and engineering challenge and uh, certainly I'm looking forward to the science that uh, Parker Solar Probe will return in the coming years. Okay, and let us finally have a look at the upcoming launches of manned and unmanned missions for October 2018. On October 11, um, a trusty Soyuz rocket uh, will launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan and will carry members of the Expedition 57 to the International Space Station. And uh, on October 20th, Bepi Colombo, a joint ESA-JAXA mission to Mercury, will launch from Kourou in French Guiana on a Ariane 5 rocket. And uh, the mission gets its name after Giuseppe Bepi Colombo, uh, who was a scientist and engineer at the University of Padua in Italy, um, who first implemented the interplanetary gravity assist maneuver during the 1974 Mariner 10 mission and that technique is now used commonly by planetary probes and uh, the mission has two individual spacecraft um, one is the Japanese Mercury magnetospheric orbiter which has recently been named Mayo or Mio I'm not quite sure uh, how you pronounce it and the second one is the European Mercury Planetary Orbiter MPO um, that one hasn't got a nickname yet uh, but um, maybe um, they will take the Urban Astronomer podcast suggestion and call it just Freddy um, 
a proposed lander that was supposed to be on board um, has been scrapped uh, in 2003 uh, due to budget problems. So that would have been the first landing on Mercury, um, but uh, that is not to be. Um, as missions to the inner planets are quite difficult um, to get to their target, the timeline of the mission is rather long. And uh, the spacecraft will sev take seven years to position itself uh, and enter Mercury orbit in 2025, so quite a while. And during this time, it will use solar electric propulsion and uh, nine gravity assists flying past Earth and Moon in 2020, Venus in 2020 and 21, and six Mercury flybys between 2021 and 2025. And the end of the nominal mission is 2027, and it has an option for extension until 2028. So the mission will give us plenty of um, returns once it's at Mercury. So um, a long-term thing to look forward to. Okay, that was it. Uh, that was the first installment of the Urban Astronomer Mission Update, October 2018. And as always, we welcome your comments, questions and suggestions. So please keep them coming via the Urban Astronomer Podcast website. Um, and you can also reach us via Facebook and Twitter. Until the next show, I'm Clem Unger and bye for now. And with that, we come to the end of the show. If you liked it, please consider subscribing in iTunes or on Google Podcasts or you know, whatever app you use to fetch your podcasts. Just head over to urban-astronomer.com and click on any of the podcast links for instructions and links if you need them. If you're up for it, if you have a minute or two to spare and you'd like to help grow the show, why not also leave a rating and a review? Or even better, share the subscribe link with a fellow astronomy fan or science geek. You know they'll like it. Ralph and Jen said so. And if you really want to bring a tear of joy to my eye, click the Patreon link and pledge a few dollars to support the show. As the Beatles said, all you need is love. But what they also said was, love don't pay my bills, I want money. Easy for them to say, they had all the love and all the money. What's the moral of the story? Uh, you can't really rely on, um, on professional entertainers for both personal advice, but... If you have cash to spare, you're welcome to drop a few coins in my hats to help cover costs. And if you can't, well, that's also fine. I love you all anyway. Anyway, over the past months, I've gone on and on about Scopex, South Africa's biggest astronomy event, which ran successfully a few weeks back. And like last year, I spent the entire day in the auditorium recording all the lectures so that I can play them for you here. So the next few episodes will feature these talks. And also like last year, they will also be made available in video form on my YouTube channel and on the Scopex website. Don't miss it. There were some really excellent speakers and I'm quite excited to be able to share them with you. Anyway, that's uh, that's it then, but we really are out of time. Uh, so thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show and I wish you nothing but the clearest of skies. Remember to like and subscribe. Cheers. Cheers.